Well, I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as we are making our way towards the very end of this book, which we've spent about a year in uh, on Sunday mornings, we come to verse 5, and I'd like to begin reading uh, there down to verse 18 for the passage today. So let us once again give ear to the, the uh, reading and uh, listening of God's Word. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you, by your spirit, would pierce our hearts with your truth. You grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the holiday season is over, and perhaps you, like millions of of Americans, uh, traveled over the holiday season. And traveling is not without its difficulties, whether it's the long road trip or trying to figure out how much time you need to give before you get to the airport in order to get through security. There's difficulties in traveling today in this modern age. But if we stop to think about it and we compare the type of problems that we experience today in our travel, comparing that to any other age throughout uh, human civilization, there is no comparison. Thinking about the way in which we travel today, where we know where we're going to arrive down to the very minute, comparing that to what, say, the Apostle Paul dealt with when he was making travel plans. It wasn't a matter of hours, but rather a matter of days, weeks, or even months that it would take him to, uh, to complete his journey. Well, in our passage today, we see the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians about his travel plans. And you see that he has to be very tentative in his uh, description of what he hopes to do because he knows 
that there's all sorts of problems and difficulties that accompany traveling in his day. Well, as we uh, saw a couple of weeks ago, we began chapter 16, and this is really the conclusion of Paul's letter, the final credits, if you will, of his book. And yet there's a lot here that we can glean. We saw, for example, he began the chapter by giving instructions for the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And then also he gives, he sends greetings. And in our passage today, he informs the Corinthians of his travel plans. Now, when he does this here, he's actually picking up where he left off back in chapter 4, where he assured the Corinthians that he, in fact, was going to visit them, and he was going to visit them soon. You see, some of the Corinthians were beginning to think that the Apostle Paul would never come. And as the saying go, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And some people were beginning to be puffed up. Arrogant. They were beginning to speak in such a way that Paul would never really show his face in Corinth again. And so he said back in chapter 4, Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. So here we see the Apostle Paul writing as the spiritual father of the church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, this can go one of two ways. You can have a disciplinary visit where things it's all about discipline, bringing the rod, or we can have one where we are reconciled and it's in a spirit of love and gentleness. You choose, Corinthians, which you would prefer. But Paul made clear in chapter 4 that he was coming soon if the Lord wills. But now he needs to explain why it is that he's not coming immediately. And he explains that he desires actually to pass through Macedonia. That's the region to the north of Greece. Uh, and, and it had been years since Paul had visited the churches in Macedonia that he had planted on his second missionary journey. This would include churches such as Philippi or Thessalonica or Berea. It had been a long time since he had visited them, and he very much wanted to go and check in with them and to see how they were doing. And as he would make his journey through Macedonia, he would then travel down Greece uh, and make his way down to Corinth. And so he informs them that that is his desire. But he also explains that he really would like to stay with them for a significant amount of time. He doesn't want to make just a brief visit, but to spend substantial time with the Corinthians. And here you see Paul showing pastoral sensitivity. There was a lot of problems going on in Corinth that he addressed in this letter, and he knew that a quick visit would not be beneficial, but rather spending time with them, perhaps up to three months, as he suggests, perhaps I will spend winter with you when travel, especially travel by sea, was all but impossible. And so he was, he was looking for a good occasion and a good amount of time that he might be able to spend with the Corinthians. But then he qualifies that in verse 7 by saying, if the Lord permits. James tells us that we ought to be careful when making plans, saying, well, tomorrow I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. We should always qualify that with, if the Lord wills knowing that ultimately God is sovereign. He is the one who is in control of the circumstances and that we do not determine our fate, but rather our sovereign God. 
And so that's why Paul says all of this, he acknowledges, of course, all of these plans are in the hands of the Lord who controls all things. And yet, ironically, even though Paul says, I'll come if the Lord permits, ironically, as it would turn out, we know from 2 Corinthians that Paul had a change of mind. He had a change of plans. Rather than visiting the Corinthians after passing through Macedonia, we know in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and 2 that he actually made his way straight to Corinth, then to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth, which prompted some of the Corinthians to accuse him of being fickle or uh, being vacillating in his plans. And so Paul had to defend himself in the next letter he wrote to them, saying, look, no, I'm not a fickle person. I'm not vacillating. I told you if the Lord permits. And so you can't win if you're the Apostle Paul. You have critics on both sides. You have people saying, well, Paul's never going to come. And then when he comes, they say, well, he's so fickle. And so here Paul is attempting to show his pastoral sensitivity to them. He's explaining why it is that he is not coming right away. And another reason that he's explaining why he's not coming to them immediately is because he he desires to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, of course, is the feast that takes place 50 days after Passover, so it falls typically in late May or early June. And so that's the, the, the sort of time marker that Paul would like to stay in Ephesus. And the reason why he wants to stay there is because a wide door has been opened for him. An opportunity for effective ministry has presented, him, presented itself to him. And so he wants to take advantage of that opportunity, ministering amongst the saints in Ephesus and proclaiming the gospel there. Yet, of course, with all open doors, we also have opposition. Paul knew that he, as well as all of us, are engaged in a spiritual battle. And so we're not surprised to say, we're not surprised to read that Paul says, and there are many adversaries. We know from Acts chapter 19 that Paul's ministry amongst the Ephesians was so effective that even the idol makers were beginning to see a hit in their bottom line. People weren't coming and buying the idols that they were making, and they were losing profits. And they saw Paul then as a threat. And so what did they do? Well, they instigated a riot, hoping to get Paul kicked out of the city. Of course, that plan backfired, but we see an example of the type of opposition, the type of adversaries that Paul was facing there in Corinth. It's perhaps not without reason that Paul said back in chapter 15, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, probably referring there to the human opponents that he faced. And so as he would later on remind the Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even though Paul has this wide wide door opportunity for him to effectively work, he knows it's not going to be without the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But as Paul stays there in Ephesus and continues to labor... In in the meantime, he has already dispatched Timothy to make his way to Corinth, which is why he then gives instructions concerning Timothy in verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. 
Timothy, of course, was uh, Paul's son in the faith. He was the one who came to faith uh, um, while Paul made his way through the Galatian region, and he accompanied him and became really his protege, his spiritual son, but not just uh, his protege, but also, as Paul speaks of him here, as his co-laborer. And he sends Timothy uh, in his stead, as he, des- as he explained back in chapter 4. He described him as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord in order to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul was so confident that Timothy would reflect uh, Paul's demeanor that he could send him as his, as, as his uh, ambassador. And he says that when Timothy arrives, put him at ease. You see, as a younger minister, and we know Timothy was younger, as a younger minister, Timothy would be understandably, he would have some apprehension in going to Corinth, knowing of all the issues and division and problems that were going on there. And that Paul says, I want you to go before me to start handling, uh, dealing with these issues. And so Paul prepares for his arrival in writing to the Corinthians, exhorting them to treat them as they would himself because why? Well, he's doing the same exact work that Paul's doing. He speaks of him as a co-laborer, not some greenhorn apprentice, not somebody that could be despised or looked down upon because of his youth. And so that's why he says, let no one despise him. Fascinating. This is the same language that Paul later writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So even as he wrote to Timothy to let no one despise you, he writes to the Corinthians to to not despise him as he is sent in Paul's place. You see, one gets the sense that the Corinthians wouldn't be too impressed with a visit from Timothy. Some would have preferred to have Paul himself come. Others would have much preferred to have Apollos pay them a visit. Apollos, of course, was the Jewish preacher from Alexandria who was eloquent in speech and fervent in spirit, the one who had ministered amongst the Corinthians after Paul had initially gone there. As Paul describes their labors together, he says, I planted and Apollos watered. And yet we also know from this letter that Apollos had gained a loyal following amongst the saints in Corinth. And in fact, there were divisions in the church where some were saying, I follow Paul, and others were saying, I follow Apollos. Paul spent a substantial amount of time explaining that Christ is not divided, neither should his church be, and this idea of, of giving party loyalty to one preacher or apostle over another is completely childish and ridiculous. He rebuked them for that. And yet it's fascinating that as Paul uh, then goes on to explain about Apollos in our passage, one would expect that in light of the fact that there were divisions in the church, some siding with Paul, some siding with Apollos, you would think that if Paul had any concern about his own ego, that he would want to discourage Apollos from going. He wouldn't want him to go knowing that there were people who who favored him. And yet it is quite the contrary. Paul strongly urged Apollos to go to Corinth, to accompany Timothy and these other brothers to make his way there. He could care less about his own ego. He strongly encouraged him to go since they were co-laborers. They were one working together in the field of the Lord. 
And yet, Paul explains that it was not at all his will to go. Now, why? Paul doesn't tell us. Did Apollos have other plans? Was he planning on going somewhere else instead? Perhaps. But perhaps also, he had gotten wind of these divisions that were in the church and that there was a particular group of people who were saying, we follow Apollos, he's our guy. And that really put him off. And perhaps he really had no interest in going to Corinth because of their immaturity and uh, the divisions that were being caused in part because of him being there. Well, in any case, Paul then goes on to, to explain that he will come eventually when he has opportunity. But the point being is that Apollos not coming has nothing to do with Paul. You see, some, some of them had probably written, when's Apollos going to come? And Paul says, look, I, I told him to go, but he was not willing. So it was not on Paul's account that Apollos was absent. And then we come to verse 13, where we find these short exhortations, which is typical of the end of Paul's letter and really gives a headache to preachers as they're trying to organize their sermon together. And then you see all of these short, terse, sort of one-word exhortations that the Apostle Paul gives. And you wonder, how is this going to fit into the sermon? But as we look at these passages, we, or as we look at these short, terse exhortations, which really have a sort of a, a military theme, be strong, stand firm, act like men, we see how they fit in the context and really uh, reflects sort of Paul's exhortations from the entire letter. He tells them, as, as he says in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the same idea that he's telling the Corinthians. Be strong. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. You need to stand firm in the faith. But perhaps of all of these exhortations, the one that may cause some of our eyebrows to raise or maybe us to scratch our heads or maybe for you ladies to say, well, how on earth can I do this? is Paul's exhortation to say, when he says, act like men, be manly. That's literally what the Greek is. But I think that's an overly literal translation. You see, Paul is not suggesting that the Corinthians need to engage in more masculine behavior as opposed to feminine behavior. The word manly has two semantic opposites. It could be contrasted with a feminine behavior, so manly versus feminine, but manly could also be contrasted with childish. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, act like a man. That's exactly what he said back in chapter 13 when he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, to a church that was acting in an immature, childish manner, as Paul even calls them infants in Christ back in chapter 3, Paul now closes his letter by spurring them on to spiritual maturity, rooted and grounded in their faith, and arming themselves with spiritual armor against the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, he had many adversaries in Ephesus at the time of writing, but he could be confident that, that there were many adversaries in Corinth as well. So he tells them to be on alert, to stand firm, to be mature, and to heed 
his exhortations that he has written to them throughout the entire letter. But the final exhortation we see in verse 14, of course, echoes the sentiment of chapter 13, which is that all things, above all things, they are to act in love towards one another. See, love ought to be the driving force, the motivation for all of their actions so that the church would be built up, so that the church would be edified. But we might question at this point, how are they to follow through with these exhortations? Who would be responsible to ensure that not only these short terse exhortations, but really the entire letter is applied to the hearts and lives of the saints there at Corinth? Of course, Timothy was making his way there, but he wouldn't stay very long. Paul would end up in Corinth, but he too wouldn't stay permanently. Maybe Apollos would pay them a visit when he had opportunity. But who would be there day in and day out Every Sunday, applying the word of God and making sure that these exhortations are applied to the lives of the saints there in Corinth. Well, that's why Paul concludes our passage by commending the local leaders. He has this final exhortation in verse 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers. But before he completes his exhortation, he reminds them of Stephanus. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Here, describing them, or sorry, the the household of Stephanus, you may recall, were among those who were personally baptized baptized by the Apostle Paul when he first made his visit there to Corinth. Back in chapter 1, he was explaining how he was thankful that he did not personally baptize many in the church because uh, it, it may lead some people to say, I've been baptized into the name of Paul, which Paul says is absolutely ridiculous. And so he says, I'm thankful to God that I only baptized Crispus and Gaius among you. And then we see in parentheses, Paul say, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I can't remember if I have baptized anyone else. And one gets the sense that as Paul is dictating this letter, that Stephanus was actually in the room. And as Paul is dictating, I only baptized Crispus and Gaius among you, Stephanus says, oh, hey, Paul, remember, you baptized me in my household as well. And Paul felt the need to put that in there. Well, here we see Stephanus appearing again. As Paul reminds them of the fact that they were the first converts, literally the first fruits of Achaia, which is the region where Corinth lies. While not technically the first converts from that region, because we know that there were converts in Athens as well, when Paul describes Stephanus and his household as firstfruits, the idea is that they were the ones through whom an entire harvest of souls was brought. That's the idea of the firstfruit sacrifice is that you give a token sacrifice, the initial gleaning to the Lord, and uh, with, with the full confidence that the rest of the harvest is to follow. This is the same word that Paul uses about Christ and the resurrection in chapter 15. Christ, the firstfruits, and then those who belong to Christ at his coming will be raised in that great uh, resurrection at the last day. Well, here he describes Stephanus as the first fruits who had devoted him, he and his family had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
The fact that Stephanus had a household showed that he was a man of means, that he had money, he had property. And he, and while Paul doesn't go into details, we see that Stephanus had dedicated all to serving the church. But not only was he a servant, but also clearly a leader in the church because of the fact that Paul says, submit unto him. And so we see this, this servant leader being commended by the Apostle Paul to his readers. I think Stephanus got the idea of being a servant leader from his Lord Jesus Christ, as he describes as Jesus told his disciples in in Mark chapter 10. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, to a church that was obsessed with status, with gaining the upper hand, Paul directs their attention to a man and his family who have faithfully and humbly served their church since its inception. And so that's why he can hold forth this local leader in the Corinthian church and say, submit to him and to such men as he. Subject yourself to them. Here's the, the, uh, the actual final exhortation that he began in verse 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers, be subject to such men as these. That's his final exhortation. You see, Christianity, while not hierarchical, is neither egalitarian. We're not all equals here in the sense that God, through Christ, has furnished his church with men who are qualified to lead as servants. And that's why it is that God, having established authority structures in his church, has gifted men for office and then called us to submit to one another in the Lord. That's what Paul means when we read in Ephesians chapter 5, be subject to one another in the Lord. It doesn't mean we're all subject to each other in exactly the same way. No, it means that we subject ourselves to the authorities that God has placed over us. We see a similar exhortation at the end of The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, submission in the church is a two-way street. As the author to the Hebrews explains, that we are called to submit and to obey the leaders, the authorities that God has placed over us. But then he turns around and he says, those authorities will have to give an account for the work that they have done as under shepherds to the chief shepherd of our souls. But then he he turns back to the way in which it is done. He exhorts his readers to, to say, let those leaders oversee you with joy. And not with groaning. This reminds me of what Paul wrote in chapter 4. How would you like my visit to come? Shall I come with a rod? Or shall I come in love with the spirit of gentleness? It could be done with joy. Or it could be done with groaning. But it's going to get done. Oversight in the church is the way in, is the way in which the Lord oversees, uh, uh, cares for his flock through these under shepherds. So it's a two-way street. We both have responsibilities, both leaders as well as uh, uh, the, the church itself. 
But of course, Stephanus was not alone. He was not the only one who was commended as a servant leader, as one who had faithfully dedicated himself to the service of the saints. But we also have accompanying him in verse 17, Fortunatus and Achaicus. These men only mentioned here in the New Testament clearly served alongside of Stephanus and served as a delegation in his visit to Paul, presumably with that initial letter that the, with the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul, and now Paul, having received the letter from Stephanus and, and Fortunatus and Achaicus, uh, he's now writing the response, and he's going to give that letter to those men as they take it back to Corinth. But in so doing, he mentions these men, he commends these men, and he, he speaks of the joy and the encouragement that he received from them. You see, their presence was a source of encouragement as they brought a little bit of Corinth with them to Ephesus. After reading the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you have to wonder, I think the Corinthians weren't all that lovable. You'd have to think the Apostle Paul would be pretty fed up with these people. Having spent 18 months planting the church, having poured out his heart and soul uh, in, in establishing these congregations, they turn around, they divide themselves. There's people who are speaking evil against him. And you'd think that Paul would just be fed up with them and not really want to have anything to do with them. But we see his pastoral heart as he speaks of, of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because what did they do? They made up for their af- absence. In seeing these men, he was reminded of all the other uh, uh, saints there in Corinth. And he was encouraged because he was able to hear more about him. Oh, what about so-and-so? How are they doing? And asking these questions, and they were able to sort of bring a bit of Corinth with them to Ephesus as Paul and eagerly anticipates paying them a visit. He said, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And in the closing, uh, the closing exhortation, he says, give recognition to such people. See, the Corinthians were wanting to uh, 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 exalt themselves. But he says, no, think about these servant leaders. Think about these men who faithfully serve your congregation. Submit to them, recognize them, and follow their example. See, this is how the Lord, by his word and spirit, governs his church. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the risen Lord Jesus Christ showered gifts upon his church. And what do those gifts look like? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which is another word for pastor. Pastor literally just means shepherd and teachers. To do what? Well, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's just a, that's the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. 
there. As Paul commends these leaders to equip the saints, to do the work of the ministry, to build them up in their faith and knowledge. So that, so why? Well, so that they can begin serving one another as the body of Christ. May God grant to us strength by his spirit so that we might do just this. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that when you ascended, you showered gifts upon your church through the power of the Holy Spirit to each and every one of us. But we thank you in particular for the gifts having to do with the ministry of the word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to uh, build us up by your word and spirit and so that we may use our gifts for the good of one another, motivated by love, so that the church may be built up. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.